Hi, I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. And you're listening to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Hey guys, welcome back. We are here with Dr. Terry Roth. Yeah, guys, we're really excited. We have a world-renowned, and I'm not exaggerating this time, a world-renowned scientist with us today. Dr. Roth is the Vice President of Conservation Science and the Director of CREW, which is our Center for Conservation and Research of Endangered Wildlife here at the Cincinnati Zoo. So, Dr. Roth, we're really excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much, and thanks for the invitation. I'm glad to be here and and glad to talk to both of you. We're so excited to have you, a true scientist and also hero for a lot of us, a rhino conservationist and protector and so many things. We mentioned crew, and we've talked about it before, but will you tell us your thoughts on what crew is? I mean... What your role is with crew as well. And what your role is, yeah, Yeah. for sure. Sure, sure, sure. Well, crew is one of those special places that really kind of sets the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden um, way up there, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, You know, it's very visionary that crew was developed years ago, one of the first of its kind, and it's a center that's completely committed to conserving wildlife by using science. And we at crew do believe that science is a very, very important part of of wildlife conservation. And so that's what we're trying to achieve over there. Uh, So it's special. Um, Very few zoos have a facility like crew and a dedicated staff of scientists that are working on this effort is kind of a thing. And um, we like to believe that it's also a privilege to work there because it's a real honor to be able to work with some of these endangered species and to really try to make a difference. And so I kind of I refer to it as the, the science hub of the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden. And it is both plants and animals, so we do cover the garden as well. <laughs> yes, I like that. Yeah, that's what it is, a science hub. But you're doing so much good there and so many amazing things that my brain truly can't even <laughs> process or handle. <laughs> yes, definitely. Definitely. If you don't mind, though, I'd like to just learn a little bit about you, your background. What got you interested in science, specifically like reproductive physiology? Where did this all begin? Was it a young age? or? It was a young age, and I don't want to go on at length, um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll keep it fairly concise. I actually grew up in California and on a very small farm and got very involved in 4-H, and always, always, always was an animal lover. I watched a lot of Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, uh, visited the San Diego Zoo every summer, and um, just really wanted to do something with animals. And so this work with all the uh, 4-H animals, raising sheep and going to horse shows and raising bottle calves, um, it made me realize that I, that I really loved that, and I was passionate about it. Everybody thought I was going to go to veterinary school, and some people do make, make the mistake and think I'm a veterinarian, but I'm not. Um, I shadowed a veterinarian for a little while and decided it wasn't exactly what I wanted. Uh, went to college, kind of studied animal science in general, and then took a class where a professor was just absolutely fascinating and talking about reproductive physiology and what you can do with embryos and cryopreservation. And, and it just it really hit home with me, and I realized that's where, that's where my heart was. So... Um, I continued on in graduate school, got a master's degree and a PhD, and um, it was all in reproductive physiology, but also minored in immunology because I find the immune wow. system is is very fascinating as well. So, oh my gosh, Definitely. I learned so much from you. Definitely, I'm glad you drew that distinction though, because I feel like a lot of people outside of the animal field they see it's someone that works with animals and they're a doctor. They must be a vet, right? But almost no one at crew are actual veterinarians, correct? We have, we have a few. Okay. Um, we do have a few of veterinarians, but they specialize in research, and they all have both DVM degrees and PhD degrees. Mm. Um, so what I like to tell people is that, yeah, a veterinarian 
um, is great with the, for the clinical work. Uh, PhD is the one that really does best with the research. And if you have both degrees, even better. Uh, but you certainly don't need a DVM degree to do some really good research. So. What kind of research did you do for your master's and your PhD, and where did you? Like, yeah, for, for my master's degree, I worked at, um, well, I was at the UC Davis out in California, and I worked on sheep and goats okay. primarily, um, doing something interesting called producing chimeric animals, which is actually a combination of sheep and goat, and it sounds a little Frankenstein-y, <laughs> but it was actually really looking at the topic of interspecies embryo transfer. Um, with the application to endangered species, the potential application. And what we were interested in doing was trying to determine why sheep and goats do not hybridize and why they could not carry each other's embryos to term. Um, because we have models where that can happen, like the donkey and the horse. Yeah. We know they hybridize and we know they can carry each other's embryos to term. So it was this idea of trying to figure out if you're going to get a recipient for an endangered species embryo, what do you need to look for? to make sure that embryo is going to survive. Wow. So I've never thought about that Me and either. how some animals can and some can't. Yeah. And did you figure out the reason why sheep and goats cannot? Well, that probably would have been a few more than two years. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but we did learn a lot of interesting information from it. Um, and I actually took that theme and, and did my PhD in, in the same kind of vein, looking at specifically at immunosuppressive substances produced by the fetus that help protect it while it's developing okay. in the mother. Yeah. Wow. That is fascinating. Yes. I don't even know where to begin. So then, <laughs> so you, you were working in, in um, D.C. at the National Zoo, right? Is that correct? I was. At one point. Okay, and then you came here. So you've been at the zoo for a while now. And, and in my opinion, you're like, the rhino person, you know, the rhino expert. What led you to rhinos? Were you working with those in D.C. or...? Yeah, good, good question. So to kind of finish the story, when I finished, I, I did my Ph.D. at Louisiana State University, just in huge contrast to California. Yeah. Um, and then when I was getting finishing up the Ph.D., I started looking around for zoos that had a program that might hire somebody like me, and there were only three at the time. It was the National Zoo, it was the Cincinnati Zoo, and it was the San Diego Zoo. And so I kind of sent my application and said, hey, I'm getting my Ph.D. I really want to work in this field. Uh, the National Zoo responded to me and had a postdoc position. And so I went up there okay. and started working. But the caveat was if I was going to get that job, I had to work on cats. And I, I had most recently been working on horses and donkeys as well as the sheep and goats. Um, so that was a transition, but it was fine. It was interesting, and I did a lot of work with snow leopards, um, some work with cheetahs as well, and then migrated back towards my hoofstock. And so I started working with scimitar-horned oryx and actually had just written a grant to work on rhinos about a year before this job became available at the Cincinnati Zoo. Okay. So I had just started working on rhinos maybe a year into it before coming here. And then when I landed here, what an amazing opportunity. Here we are with the last of the Sumatran rhinos in North America, all at this facility. And so it was kind of a sharp detour. My grant was primarily to look at African species, but um, the director at that time, Ed Maruska, he sat me down and said Sumatran rhinos are the absolute priority, and that's what, what you really need to focus on. So it was a perfect fit, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it a really match was. made in heaven. Yeah. Really. It was really perfect. I had no idea. That's how it kind of got started with the Sumatran rhinos. That's really interesting. And yeah, what are the odds? You made it here. 
the only place with Sumatra rhinos at the time. And then, I mean, I don't really know where to start with that. But <laughs> <laughs> tell us. What let's the- start with. Let's start with really quick. We are airing this episode on September twenty second. Today is World Rhino Day. That's why we have our zoo's resident rhino expert on the show. So, where did the journey with Sumatran rhinos begin? We had them when you got here. What were you tasked with, I guess? What was your goal? Right. Well, the, the, that program actually started before I even got here. Um, but it was actually something that began as a very controversial issue in the 1980s. And a core group of uh, zoo folks as well as conservationists said we really need to establish a breeding program for this species because it's imperiled and um, it's going to disappear otherwise. And so there was this effort that, and and our zoo director, the Cincinnati Zoo Director at that time was one of those people at those meetings and um, very forward thinking, they decided that they needed to capture a few rhinos and try and develop this joint program, both in Asia as well as in North America and um, the UK. So they captured some rhinos At the end of the day, the United States only received seven individuals, and they were of completely unknown origin, uh, age, fertility status, nobody knew that. Um, The only seven rhinos we received here. Immediately, of course, there were challenges with them. They were different from every other rhino. Um, They were very difficult to maintain. And uh, over the years, a few of them were lost. And so by the time I was a, was here at Cincinnati. By the time I arrived, we had just become the zoo with the final three animals because much the way zoos cooperate on so many things, the last three zoos with Sumatran rhinos agreed that they all needed to be sent to one zoo for one final chance to try and breed them. And so the Los Angeles Zoo sent their female to us. The male resided here at Cincinnati at the time, and the Bronx Zoo sent their female to us. And again, that's a tribute to people working together and saying, let's do what's best for the species. So when I arrived, the three rhinos were here. We didn't know much about them. We didn't know much about them reproductively. And my task was to try and figure out how to breed them. At that time, since the program began in the 1980s, nobody had been able to breed them since they started capturing them. And nobody knew much about them. And so it was really uh, an effort of, hey... You know, what do we know about the other rhino species? What technologies can we use in other rhino species? And let's see how we can adapt it and use it with Sumatran rhinos, do some really good science, figure them out, and hopefully produce some calves at the end of the day. No pressure, right? No pressure. Like, not a big deal. At this point in time, do you know how many Sumatran rhinos were left in the world, in the wild? At that time, it was. It, I was being told somewhere between 600 and 800 Sumatran rhinos. Do you think... That was incorrect, or have we seen that much of a decrease in that amount in this amount of time? I, you know, I, people have said for years that those numbers were inflated, but at the same time, I've seen situations where there are obviously populations in forests with pictures and calves and footprints, and I've seen them disappear very, very quickly. So mm. I'm I'm really uncertain on that one. It could be they were slightly inflated, but the rapid disappearance is a real thing. Yeah, it's yeah. It's shocking and really sad to hear, but the last I heard, there were about anywhere from 70 to 100 Sumatran rhinos left in the entire world. Is that the numbers you're still that is sharing? The, that is yeah. the current estimate, yeah. And you know, when I first started traveling over to Southeast Asia, there were rhinos in Malaysia. There were rhinos on peninsular Malaysia, um, no question. So again, even if the numbers were high, um, they still had rhinos, now they're gone. They are gone um, from all of Malaysia. 
So. And you talk about the Sumatranus specifically. You say there wasn't really much known about it. I think to the average listener, they might say, well, what makes this Sumatran rhino so special? Why Why did they know about it? This is a 2,000, 2,500 pound animal. What does make this Sumatran rhino so unique? Yeah, it, you know, a variety of things. And first of all, you got to look at it as it's a forest rhino. So it's extremely solitary. Um, it also is not a grazer. So it does not eat grass. It browses and it eats bushes. It eats branches from trees. Uh, so its diet was probably the first hurdle that we hit once we had these rhinos. The, the rhinos from Africa, we bring them in and, and convert them over to a hay diet. They do relatively well. Uh, Sumatrans, no, absolutely could not survive on hay. So figuring out their diet was a real challenge. The fact that they live in these really dense forests and spend most of the day in mud wallows laying in the shade, their eyes are extremely sensitive to bright sunlight. And so we started seeing eye problems in the rhinos as well. And we had some of that trouble here until we put up our big shade structure over the exhibit area. And that made a big difference. Um, but yeah, so and, and, and this eye problem is not just here in the United States. We see it over in Southeast Asia as well. They can't be out in the sun too long. And then the, the trying to breed them, um, no, nothing was known about their reproductive cycles and how long they were or when the female would be in estrus. The behavior wasn't obvious. You know, in so many animals, you can just tell behaviorally, boy, yeah, the cat's in estrus again, I can tell, <laughs> you know. Um, but not with these rhinos. And so that's why the science really had to be used so that we could, we could kind of figure it out. They are solitary, so they don't live together. And you try putting them together on a daily basis, and you just get a lot of fights and serious fights. So... We couldn't just say, let's just put them together and ignore them, and when the time is right, they'll do it. We had to manage that situation. And so, again, we, we, needed, we needed information about what's their reproductive cycle like and how can we detect this is the right day, let's put them together today because we think the female is going to be receptive and they will breed and not just fight. Um, and so that's what my research really was for a while. And I was wrong for a long time. Believe me, it was tough because it turns out the Sumatran rhino, unlike all the other rhino species that we know of, um, the Sumatran rhino is an induced ovulator, and what that means is she will only ovulate under a certain, with a certain stimulus and that has to do with the male, in this case. And without introducing them, we just kept monitoring the female and monitoring the female for like eight months, and I, ne I never saw her ovulate. <laughs> so you just kept waiting for her to cycle, I was like, basically. well, <laughs> I still don't have a cycle length on this rhino. Um, so, yeah, so you, you, know, you have to, as a scientist, you have to realize, okay, I'm, uh, this is not working. I have to change my methods. And dealing with such a great group of keepers here. Um, the animal care staff has been fantastic and has been like a right hand through all of this. And they were game and, um, you know, ready to try something else. And I said, we're, we're going to have to introduce them. We're just going to have to introduce them on a daily basis. But we'll do it for a very short period of time. We'll, you know, we time it right. We make sure everybody's had their breakfast. We put them out, you know, when the male's settled in the pool and he's comfortable <laughs> and it's less likely to be aggressive. And, um, and let's just do this on a daily basis for a while. And it took us about 42, I think it was 42 days of doing this, wow. usually just for like 15, 20 minutes at a time. And then if nothing was happening, we just would separate them. And one morning we put them together and sure enough, that male just slowly came right out of the pool as soon as the female entered the, the enclosure and he started following her around and it was all very passive, no fighting or anything. And before the end of the day, he was mounting her. And so we finally had our first male-female interaction. Two days later, she ovulated. Oh, 
And oh that's gosh. when I would learn that she was an induced ovulator. I truly got goosebumps hearing <laughs> this story. Like, insane. I cannot imagine how exciting that was. And, like, what a relief and how crazy it was to find, yeah. figure that out. And after all of that waiting and... Yeah. Was yeah. that a successful pregnancy after that? That was not. Okay. And so we had to go back to the introductions because I still don't know her cycle length, yeah. right? Because all I know now is, oh, she had to be with the male to ovulate. Um, but I do know how large the follicle was on her ovaries before she ovulated. And so since we were using ultrasound to monitor on a regular basis, now I had that little piece of data. And I'm like, okay, that day, when we put her together that day with that size of follicle, that is when she was receptive. And so we could look for that. And wow. three weeks later, she had the same size follicle, and we put them together. And that time they did breed, and that day she did conceive. Wow. Yeah. Can you tell us the names? Because some of our listeners are big, you know, zoo fans and have been following, and they might know who you're talking about. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Our, our Sumatran rhinos are, are relatively famous, and our, our pair that really did it for us was Ipu, who was the male, and Emmy was the female. Um, and Emmy will always be my favorite. Aww. Always be my favorite. She was an awesome rhino. So... Yeah, so that was really exciting. Now, not only did we learn what size the follicle needed to be, we learned the, the length of the cycle was 21 days as long as she ovulates, and that's key because if she doesn't ovulate, it can vary. Um, but we had another huge hurdle that took us years to overcome. She lost the pregnancy, and she lost it within about the first two months of gestation. And so... I tried to be the optimist, and I said to myself, well, this is great. We know so much more now. We know how to breed them. We know that he's got, he's fertile. We know that she's fertile. We just, you know, it's just, it was her first time, and of course, things can go wrong. So we'll try again, and she'll get pregnant again. Well, she did get pregnant again, but in total, she lost five pregnancies oh all gosh. in the first three months of gestation. So it was like a roller coaster. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, and to your comment earlier, Jenna, this is something that's watched critically by people around the world. And so, um, it, you know, you're not just suffering yourself because you've just lost this really important pregnancy, but then you have to tell everybody the bad news that, oh, you guys, mm -hmm. we lost another one. And then people start questioning you and what are you doing wrong and what's not going, what, you know, and it... Yeah, it's 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 a challenge. Um, it was it was really a struggle, and and I didn't really have the answer. We were doing all kinds of tests. We were looking at everything from all the nutrients, you know, all, all the everything in our serum that we could look at, looking at cortisol levels, looking at any anything that we could maybe find something, you know, that says, oh, this is deficient or this is too high. Um, couldn't find anything like that, and so. Finally, just, you know, looking at how people manage horses, and the horses suffer a lot of early pregnancy loss, too, and there is this oral supplement. They put them on a hormone, progesterone, that seems, seems to help and doesn't really have any negative side effects. And so finally, the sixth time she conceived, we put her on that, that oral supplement of progesterone, and that was what did it. And um, Wow. Yeah. And you broke the code. You and, made it. <laughs> and she carried that calf to term. And, and again, huge credit to the caretakers. They, were, they had to deliver a fairly large volume. It's fluid. They had to get her to, to take it in every single day because we didn't want a couple days to go by and then her hormone levels drop and she yeah. aborts. And so they did it, though, a stack of Wonder Bread. <laughs> <laughs> Our awesome keep Paul Reinhardt, there he is. He's like, I know how we can do this. Stack a Wonder Bread, inject the, the hormone into the Wonder Bread, 
feed the rhino piece by piece this this bread soaked in hormone and these very specialized eaters you know wonder bread wonder <laughs> bread <wonders. laughs> so and i have made that joke on many lectures where as a scientist i can't say it was the hormone because it might have been the wonder bread <laughs> it probably was like, no carry that pregnancy to turn all of your hard work that's incredible and that was on dallas right it was on okay. dallas yes uh so go ahead and tell us that's amazing we Tell us about the future calves and kind of what's going on with Sumatran rhinos now. I'm glad Mark mentioned it is World Rhino Day, if you're listening to this, on Wednesday, September 22nd. Um, so we have other rhinos to talk about too, but we do want to kind of focus on Sumatrans because that's what, I mean, you've made so much history with them here. So tell us a little bit more about what happened after that. Yeah, and I think I think the rest of the story kind of adds to the Cincinnati Zoo and Botan Botanical Gardens legacy because it, it really is something to hang our hat on, I think. Um, well, Andalus was the firstborn calf, and that was great, but we knew that, you know, we needed to get back at it as soon as we could and, and, and try to breed Emmy and Ipu again and keep things going. And we did, and we were able to produce two more calves. And then, meanwhile, Andalus traveled over back to the Los Angeles Zoo and continued growing up and then was eventually sent over to Indonesia. And this is really interesting because in Indonesia at this point, they had one male rhino and they had two females. And that male rhino, even though they were eventually able to get him to breed, he was not producing any pregnancies. And so they really needed a, a fertile male to help them with their breeding program. And we had produced one. And so um, we sent Adalas over to Indonesia, and he um, has a great home at the Sumatran Rhino Sanctuary there on the island of Sumatra. And now he has succeeded in producing two calves over in Sumatra for the Indonesians, which is really awesome. So we have been able to return to them, you know, the big favor they did to us when they sent us rhinos to begin with. And what a great partnership that has been, um, being able to transfer all the technology, everything we learned here over yeah. to the, the mm -hmm. veterinary staff and the, and the animal caretakers over there, and they've been able to succeed now using our little guy, Andalus, as their, <laughs> as their actual breeding sire. Um, so that's super exciting, and again, something just a nice way to show how zoos can really contribute to the bigger picture of wildlife conservation. Right, because Definitely. it is hard, if you think about it, you know, bringing those animals over here and capturing them, that, that's kind of a big deal, and we don't want to do that these days. It's, you know, something we avoid, but because of it, you know, Emmy and Ipu really helped us figure a lot out and gave us that little extra that we could give back to the world, you know, rhino populations in general, but you learned so much from that, and you know, while it wasn't an ideal thing, it's also not ideal that their force are being, you know, so many things. But anyways, it's amazing that because they came here, we were able to learn so much. Yeah. So And not only learn so much, but inspire people as well. Like, if it weren't for, I mean, Ipu at the Cincinnati Zoo, I don't know if I would have ever heard of a Sumatran rhino. No I don't kidding. think most yeah. of the United States would have heard of these animals. So they really helped inspire and spread their message to people. Yeah, and that's great. And that's, you know, that's, it's really nice to know that we've had that impact. And I think especially Harapan, who eventually himself, our third calf, did eventually um, get sent to Sumatra as well. And we're all sad about that. Um, but I think, you know, we really tried to publicize that this is the last chance you're going to see a Sumatran rhino in the, in the Western Hemisphere yeah. and, you know, come and see him. And, and people did. People really did. They came out to see him and to have that experience before he 
made his way over to Sumatra too. And we're hoping that someday soon he will also be a sire like his brother. Um, they're working on it over uh, there. So. Good luck, Hairpan. Yeah. <laughs> we're rooting for you. <laughs> so how old are Hairpan and Andalus over in Well, Sumatra? now that you ask, Andalus just had his 20th birthday. <gasps> wow. Yesterday. Oh, happy birthday. Happy Yesterday. birthday. Wow. Isn't so that amazing? Exciting. That yeah. tells you how time flies. I was going to say, I can't believe that. Yeah. I know. It's, it's kind of crazy. So, um, yeah, so he, yeah, he's, he's done well and, and he's, you know, he's, he's been doing a great job over in Sumatra and Harapan was the youngest of the three. So I'm trying to think exactly how old Harapan is now. It all runs together for you, I'm sure. A, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he was born in, um, nine, 2007. Oh, not nine. <laughs> <laughs> does go, does go very quickly. Two thousand seven. Yeah. So he's he's gonna be. He is actually fourteen because his his birthday was in July. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good memory. <laughs> Everyone always asks our animals' birthdays, and I'm like, I numbers for me sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. too many to remember. In fact, I very conveniently forget my own birthday. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll start doing that soon. <laughs> oh, That's amazing, though. And you, you did mention that these animals and Dallas and Harapan, they were sent back to Sumatra, to the Sumatran Rhino Sanctuary. I know both of you actually, Jenna and Terry, you both have had the privilege to go to Sumatra and visit SRS. Will you just talk about that experience a little bit? What it's like actually seeing these animals in their native habitat? I'm going to let Jenna talk about oh that. Oh my gosh. Please. Well, please. <laughs> I don't know if I can put this in perspective to everyone, but I clearly am an animal lover. Um, and this might hurt my husband's feelings and my son's someday. <laughs> but I did not cr really cry at my wedding. And I hardly shed a tear when I had a baby. But I bawled like a baby when I got to meet Harapan and had to say goodbye. And I'm not like a happy crier. I don't know. It was just <laughs> so heavy to know that you may never see this animal, ev this species ever, ever again. And he was... You know, just so friendly and came over and gave me this really special greeting and oh my gosh, I could cry right now thinking about it. But it was the craziest feeling, but I can tell you it's the most amazing facility. They have the most, I mean, they're protected, but also have their like natural home, their natural habitat. So seeing them and their bonds with their caretakers there was incredible and um, knowing how much good is hopefully, you know, coming out of this or is coming out of it, but hopefully we'll see more babies. Um, Yes, Sumatra Rhino Sanctuary is a magical, magical place. Um, so I can speak on it, too. They're doing amazing things, and I feel like the rhinos are in the best hands there. But as far as Dr. Roth's experience, it's much, much different. She has helped them and, you know, educated and done so many things, and I'm sure made so many friends there. And also, you have to navigate a lot of political things and different stuff. You're, like, a true advocate and a voice, you know, Sorry. Oh, you can go. You tell us about your experience there. I could go on. It was amazing. Yeah, it it has been a really a really interesting experience, and again, a privilege to be involved like this and um, traveling over. I've been going over there since probably 1998. I think is when I started um, traveling over pretty much once a year, except in COVID years, and. Um, and working with the team. So yeah, a lot of friends, a lot of colleagues over the years, and. Um, I think a lot of empathy for them and what they're going through because we've been through the experience here where we had the Sumatran rhinos and we knew the amount of weight that's on your shoulders when you're trying to do something with a species that's this close to the extinction. 
and um, it is um, it's a lot of pressure it's a lot of pressure and you know they're they are doing a great job over there and they are passionate about it and the nice thing is really getting even though I'm involved in a lot of the government meetings and things like that but actually having the opportunity to work with the folks on the ground at the sanctuary where the real passion and the real heart is and so that's been that's been really nice um, to be able to connect with those folks and, and they're the ones who date it day in day out or with those rhinos as well and so it's been a great it's been a great relationship um, it really has and I, I like to think I've done some good over there um, and I you know I think the friendships are, are real and so um, that's that's it's it's a nice change from just politics and meetings and committees and things to to actually get on the ground, even though they do have leeches. Oh my gosh. <laughs> a few other things that aren't always so fantastic. But um, uh, I, sorry, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but you mentioned leeches, and I had one in my belly button. It was the most no. horrifying oh. thing I've ever experienced. It was awful. Land leeches. So it's not like I went swimming. They are on the forest floor oh and they crawl up really quickly. And they are yeah, amazing. They are. They are amazingly athletic. I don't even know how they get where they get. Um, but it's crazy. Yes. It, it's crazy. It is. And you mentioned some of this, the caretakers at the SRS. They do have like rhino protection units, correct? I think I've heard a little bit about this. They do. Yeah, yeah. The rhino protection units have been have really been key in just getting us to this point and still having Sumatran rhinos. Um, those guys do patrol the forests. They go out and they, you know, they don't just protect rhinos. They protect all the forest animals because they are taking snares out. So they are, you know, catching people who are in there illegally destroying wildlife, destroying plant life. Um, so the rhino protection units are have been a key piece to saving Sumatran rhinos. And they struggle too, uh, because the more roads that get built through the forest, the harder it is to keep the forest protected. And that's been happening. And so um, I know it's, it's hard on them as well. And that is hard work. I mean, it is hot, it is humid. And again, the forests are full of leeches, and so um, you got to give those guys a lot of credit. Um, but but thank goodness we've we've got them out there working hard. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to do a whole episode on like bowling for rhinos and what we can do to help and and highlight the rhino protection units and International Rhino Foundation sometime. So we might have to have another conversation about that. Um, but we recently heard that you have some really good news. We've shared that it's tough with Sumatran rhinos and. And all five species of rhino, to be honest. So, I guess, yeah, if you can tell us your your good news, and then maybe we can talk about the other four species we haven't mentioned briefly, too. Yeah, yeah, we do have some good news. Um, we just recently received word from the Institute of Museums and Library Services that a big grant we submitted last fall has been awarded funding, and the whole focus is rhinos. And so... What we call this program is the AIRS program. It's the American Institute of Rhinoceros Science. Wow. And it is a, a huge collaborative approach. So the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden, the crew team is going to be working with five other facilities um, with rhino experts. And we just decided that, you know, the best thing we can do for the rhinos is to work as a team. And basically what I tell people is the whole is greater than the sum of its parts when it comes to wildlife conservation. So let's all pull together, um, share information, and um, just try and make the lives for our rhinos as the optimal as we can. Um, I think given the poaching crisis that has happened since 2008, where we've lost so many rhinos to poaching after we thought we had it under control, 
We can never be certain those wild populations are going to be safe. The populations we have in our zoos are so important as a backup um, as we see those wild populations get hit now and then with threats out there. And so what we're trying to do is take a diverse group of scientists with different expertise and focus on the key issues that we think um, are the challenges, challenges to maintaining self-sustaining populations of rhinos in our nation's zoos. So those problems were identified by an even larger group of, of 32 scientists and, and rhino experts. And, um, and so now our group is going to really drill down and do some really good research over the next three years and um, share data with each other. And, you know, we know the problems are integrated, so it's not just they shouldn't be trying, we shouldn't try and solve them in isolation. And just trying to improve things for our rhinos so they reproduce better, so that they stay healthier, so that they're in better condition, so that their well-being is improved. And you're speaking specifically about rhinos and zoos for this. Specifically. Or, okay, but then it can obviously help the wild ones. But what we, what we learn, will, yes, what we learn will expand out. Yeah, but this particular, this particular grant is focused on, it's focused on museums. Okay. And we are, zoos are living museums. I so. love it. Congratulations. Congrats, Great yeah. work. Thank I know you. it takes a lot to write a grant and I can't imagine for a really big one like that yes. and collaborating with others. So will you be doing work here? Will you have to travel to other zoos for that? A lot of work with other zoos. Okay. So we are counting on the rhino community at large um, for participation in this project. And in fact, a real strong collaborator of ours is basically a part of this program is the Wilds. And awesome. so we are going to be heavily based at the Wilds. They've got a large group of rhinos. They breed really well up there. So I think it's a, it's a great population, population to start with. And so, yeah, that's going to be fun. They have been great partners of ours for, for years and years and years. So we just kind of made it a little bit more formal last year. And um, I'll be driving up and down to the wilds and back quite a bit over the next three years. Awesome. It sounds like you guys definitely have your work cut out for you. But what a better way to celebrate World Rhino yes, Day, right? Like, so it's amazing. exciting. Good news for rhinos. Yes. Absolutely. Which is funny because I was going to ask you, like, what do you do on a daily basis? So I'm guessing grant writing or... Does somebody help you with that? I don't know, <laughs> know what all you have to do. Um, can you tell us a little bit briefly what you do on a, on a daily basis and maybe what your favorite part is of your day or a highlight, a career highlight? I don't know if you can pick one. Yeah, but. good luck picking just yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you can really beat the birth of those Sumatran yeah. rhino calves are really the absolute highlights. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> as you become more of a senior scientist, a lot more of your day is spent at the computer. And... Um, and you know, really communicating with all kinds of people, whether you're serving as a consultant, whether you're giving advice to a new graduate student, whether you're meeting with the, the team of scientists at Crew to talk about projects they're working on. Um, so all of that is good and all of that is important. I, I do miss some of the hands-on rhino work I'm that sure. we used to do so much of here with the Sumatran rhinos. And um, I don't do nearly as much as I used to. And that was one of my favorite parts. But I'll tell you what, I'm a scientist at heart. And I love getting data. I, you know, when, you, when you're working on something and you're analyzing a bunch of samples and you're finally done and you can start looking at numbers and start putting pieces together, it's fascinating to me. And so um, right now, you know, I, and it, it doesn't even need to be mine. It could be my postdocs. It could be a grad student. It could be a colleague in, at crew who just gets some data hot off the press and you're like, <laughs> what is it telling us? That is our way of learning. And so it's just, yeah, uh, people who are real real fanatical scientists, that, that really gets us going. We, we love data. And, and then you get to interpret it and you get to learn from it. And that's fascinating to us.
And I'm so thankful for people like you. Exactly, <laughs> I want exactly. you to just tell me what you learned from all of that data. <laughs> yes, definitely. So um, if you're listening again, Wednesday, uh, September 22nd, is World Rhino Day. And we, you know, talked a lot about the Sumatran rhinos, but there are five species. Will you just tell us briefly a little bit about each of the species and any, if you have any special information you'd like to share about the others or any work you've done? Yeah, well, we've talked a lot about the, the dire situation of Sumatran rhinos, and there is a glimmer of hope, and we've been a part of that. But um, some of the other rhinos are actually doing a bit better. And so, for instance, I want to just bring up the greater one-horned rhino, uh, which lives in India and Nepal. And that program, over the past 20 years, we've seen it. We've seen it. The rhino numbers are growing, and they're moving. we're moving them to more parks and um, establishing population, ad additional populations. So... That right now is looking pretty much like a, a conservation success story. Great. Um, awesome. the, the government of India has really been behind it, and I think that's made a big difference there and has been supportive of that. The Javan rhinos, which are the other Indonesian species, the numbers are actually increasing. Uh, and for years, people thought the Javan was the most endangered because their numbers have always hovered around 50, 60, 70 animals well, the good news is they haven't declined. So even though the numbers have been low for the last 20, 30 years, they're not lower. Um, and in fact, we think we've got about 74 Javan rhinos right now in, in Ujangkulan National Park. So again, the rhino protection, the, the units, those, those rangers have done an amazing job protecting that, that population. And I believe there hasn't been a loss since the rhino protection units were put in place on the island of Java, correct? Not from, pro not from poaching. Due to poaching, yes. correct. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Which is, you know, speaks to how amazing that program is. But I, I, I don't want to harp on the negative, but I just want everyone to think about that for one second. We're excited about 70, say four or seven? 74. 74 rhinos. You probably encounter close to 74 people a day if you go to work. I don't, well, I don't know about these days, <laughs> pandemic <laughs> days, but on an average day in your life, you might see that many people on a day or talk to that many people or email that many people a day. And that, I mean, that's just, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So it, it, it's a crazy low number, but it gives us hope for the Sumatran rhino yes. because their numbers are just as low now, but we haven't lost the Javan rhino. So, um, we've held on. Um, now let's jump to Africa. Yes. Most people, when we talk uh, talk rhinos, we think Africa, right? So the black rhinos and the white rhinos, and both of those um, had been doing extremely well until this poaching started really picking up um, around 2008, 2009, <clears throat> and now it's been a bigger challenge. And so um, a lot of the efforts, the conservation efforts, have really focused now on trying to control the poaching again. Um, fortunately. The white rhinos, we've ha had a fairly high number of those to begin with, um, but over the last few years, we've seen the populations decline simply because the poaching rate is so high. Um, so there is concern there, but a lot of work trying to get that under control. Otherwise, we've got about 18,000 white rhinos, so when you think of that compared to Javans and Sumatrans, mm -hmm. it sounds fantastic. Um, it's just that that growth curve has kind of um, plateaued because of the poaching. And the black rhino is kind of the same thing. They've been they've continued to grow, but much slower now that the poaching rate is is much higher. So um, we're hoping. Last year, of course, with COVID, <laughs> if there could be a silver lining to COVID, I'm not sure there can be. But the poaching actually de decreased, and so we saw m far fewer rhinos um, killed by poachers last year. But now that we're going to hopefully start coming out of COVID, we'll have to wait and see what happens, and um, still keep those protections in place because. Mm -hmm. 
those animals may be at risk. But, um, but yeah, but so on the positive side, in Africa, we probably have close, close to 24,000 rhinos. Good, yes. We'll take that. any silver lining we can get, we'll take, yes, right? Like that's, definitely. That's mm -hmm. awesome. And you did mention the, the greater one-horned rhino. We have done some work at our zoo with greater one-horns, correct, that you specifically have done? Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's funny that we ended up really focusing on the Asian species here, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's what we had, so that's what we did. And um, the greater one-horned rhino, yeah, we had an awesome program going with those for a number of years, developing artificial insemination in the greater one-horned rhino, and um, succeeded in producing several calves that way. It's a great tool to have when you're managing these rhinos, and especially the greater one-horns, because they can be pretty aggressive with each other, even when you are introducing them on the right day for breeding. And they're so large that it gets scary fast. And so um, we know that you know the genes of a, an aggressive male may be really valuable genes. Yeah. We don't want to lose them. And so if you can use artificial insemination to make sure those genes are represented and at the same time making sure the female doesn't get hurt by the male, there can be some real benefits to the population that way. So. We feel good about that. Um, the, the technique's been established, and um, we know that the sperm from the male can be cryopreserved successfully and used to produce offspring. So we have an interesting story to that, and it's directly related to this, Sue. Uh, we had a male, greater one-horned here, who unfortunately never produced any offspring in his lifetime, but the crew was able to collect and, and cryopreserve some of his sperm. And 10 years after he had already passed away, his first calf was born. No way. At the Buffalo Zoo. Oh my gosh. I remember hearing about that, no but I'm so glad way. you brought that up. It's yeah. incredible. Like, yeah. I mean, you are truly saving <laughs> and helping animals reproduce. That's, you know. Yes. Very Collecting sperm, saving it for 10 years, using artificial insemination. Like, you're truly saving these species with science. Like science, you said, it's yes. crew's goal. Like, it's. My mind's blown right now. <laughs> <laughs> so important. Science is so important. I love it. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been amazing. Again, I have so many things that we could go on about, but to save your time, Mark, do you have a, a quiz for us? I do have a little quiz for okay. you guys, of course. Per usual, I've always Oh good, it's both of us. Yes. It's oh, really, uh, both oh, yeah, both of us. Just guess right along. <laughs> No, after usually. after our last crew doctor, Dr. Jesse, after she was on and she she kind of critiqued me a little bit for using Wikipedia as my sources. I've <laughs> I've taken a step up. I'm now using National Geographic, Smithsonian. So this is actually legitimate sources for this one. So take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> so we'll start out pretty easy one here. I I shouldn't say pretty easy, but I think it's a pretty easy one. You guys mentioned the biggest threat to rhinos right now is poaching poaching for the rhino horn. So rhino horn has been proven to serve what medicinal purpose? None. It's a trick question. It's a trick question. <laughs> I like it though. Way to, way to bring that up. And then we looked at each other like, none. I had them second guessing themselves for just a split second. I, you know, as a, and as a scientist, I was sitting there thinking... If he says there is something, the science, the data's wrong. <laughs> if he says there is something. I love that that's what your brain was saying. None. It's like your fingernails, Mark. Yes, exactly. So, so the rhino horn is just made of keratin, just like our fingernails, excuse me. But unfortunately, it is used in a lot of um, traditional medicine throughout Asia, throughout Africa. This is the biggest threat to rhinos. So if we can spread that message and try and educate people on the fact that the rhino horn really does serve no purpose. Hopefully, that can be one of our one of the many pronged efforts that it's going to take to really save rhinos in the future. 
But we'll move on to the next one. We're one for one so far. What is a group of rhinos called? A crash. A crash. But some of them don't live in groups, Mark. Okay. <laughs> She's right. We just learned about the a solitary Sumatran. <laughs> we just learned about the solitary Sumatran rhino, but white rhinos do live in large groups called crashes. I always think the group names for animals yeah, is always it is fun. Yeah, it always is interesting. It is, yeah. fun. Especially Cute. because we do bowling for rhinos and you know the bowling pins crash. Yeah. I don't know. I always associate oh, those okay. together. It's, it's not okay. really a thing, but it's perfect. Alright. How large was the largest rhino horn on record? And bonus points, what species did it come from? When you say large, do you want it in pounds or kilograms or size? Length. 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 So feet in length. Do you know? Are you guessing? I'm going to guess white rhino. I would agree white rhino. You got the bonus point. It is from a white rhino. Five and a half feet long. You're very close. Oh, you're good you're at this. You're very close. <laughs> you can guess. We, Dr. It's not Roth, a fact. do you have a guess? It, I mean, it's a fact, but it's not data, right? That you have to... I, just ignore me. <laughs> you shouldn't know this by reading a book, I mean. Hmm. Do I go shorter or longer? That's really long. That's a really long horn. It's pretty amazing. I'm going to go f five feet. Almost on the dot, four feet ten inches. Uh, four nice. feet ten inches. Can you imagine carrying that around? Right yeah, Oof. a lot. Having Oof. that thing just on the end of your skull for How impressive. Yeah, cool. yeah. Does not sound like fun, but yeah, that's mm -hmm. what I my thought too. Like I thought when I was looking this fact up, I thought it was going to be like three feet or something, and it comes out to almost five feet. Wow, amazing, amazing. All right, now's when things start to get really fun. So a rhinoceros beetle can carry how much per times its body weight? A rhinoceros beetle. We're getting off the path here. <laughs> Literally off the path. <laughs> <laughs> the, be the beetle's on the path. <laughs> you can guess first. This time. Twelve times. Twelve times. Jenna? I'm going to guess seven. Seven. You're both way low. Oh. Ah! That is amazing. <laughs> About 85 times what? its body weight. Wow. It would be the equivalent of an adult human carrying about nine adult elephants. What? For what that's worth. See, that's why we were so low, because that just seems, <laughs> that seems completely impossible. Yeah. That just yeah, doesn't even seem impossible, yeah, not in the realm of feasibility. Uh, insects, no. insects are, are amazing animals, that's are. for sure. All right, last question here. This is a really fun one. In the year 1500, citizens of Klagenfort, Austria mistook an extinct woolly rhino skull for what creature? They found, the citizens of this town had found an extinct woolly rhino skull, and what creature did they think it came from? Mammoth. Jenna? A dinosaur. Dinosaur. It actually, they believed it came from a dragon. Oh. Their term for dragon was lindworm. And to this day, in Klagenfurt, Austria, a statue stands to commemorate this beast. It had the head of a woolly rhino skull, the body of a crocodile, and the wings of a bat. Wow. They believe it came from a dragon. And I will say, at Crew, you guys do have several replicas of rhino skulls. They are bizarre looking when you strip away <laughs> all the skin and horns and everything. You, you can see dragon. You can see dragon. <laughs> You're really good. <laughs>
Yeah. You really could. Uh, but that's it for trivia today. You guys performed really well. <laughs> <laughs> you got us on the last Minus one. Minus the yeah, dragon. Sure. Well, the last two, I guess. Definitely. You got oh gosh. Jenna, do we have anything else for Dr. Roth today? Yeah, well, I want to say thank you for being here. And, of course, there's so much we could do. But if you were going to give somebody you just met something they could do to help, what would it be? What can I do? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you something really, really simple that every one of us can do. And it won't take a lot of time and a lot of energy. Um, you can purchase a vanishing species postage stamp. Yes, and I love these it. are postage stamps that have been available for ten years. A portion of the proceeds of every stamp goes to a fund that supports the conservation of rhinos, but also tigers, great apes, elephants, turtles, and migratory birds. So it's been it's it, over the ten years it's it's contributed more than five million dollars no to the conservation of these species. So every little bit adds up. Super easy, and if you don't use the mail much, just think about those holiday cards that are coming up. Yes. It's a perfect way to spread the message, because there it is on every card, Vanishing Species Stamp. And it's cute. It has an animal on there. It's got a tiger on it, but it's not just the tiger that it supports. That's okay. only one so of it, several. It only does, they only do the tiger. They, they should only switch do the tiger. it up and do all of they them. They were supposed to, but they... they Decided oh, not man. to once they got rolling. Oh man, so. we're rallying for that. But we're, no, yeah. that's I think that's such a Sumatran good one. Sumatran rhino on the next or the Sumatran. Rhino. That's what we need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just you can Google them and find them and and purchase them online. Yeah, that's super simple. I mean, I hope we still send mail <laughs> in the future. But five million dollars, big difference, and something we all use. Uh, that's a really good one. So thank you for sharing Definitely. that. Thank you for being here. Definitely. Thank you for saving rhinos and other animals. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about that yes. you do. We could. We seriously could not thank you enough for being yes. here. I do want to just squeeze in, like on a personal note, it's been extremely rewarding to have the chance to actually meet you and talk to you. <laughs> I know when I was like 10, 11 years old, a book written about you, Emmy and the Rhino Scientist. It's one of the things that inspired me to be a zookeeper. I'm sure I was not the only kid reading this book being inspired. So you've really inspired the next generation of scientists, zookeepers, conservationists. And the work you do at Crew is making a difference all over the world. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Jenna. You yes. guys are really great. And I love your enthusiasm. And I love what you, you do every day here, too. It's important. It thank all works you. together. Yes, we really appreciate you. And again, World Rhino Day. See what you guys can do. Look up those hashtags, World Rhino Day 2021, and you'll see all sorts of awesome rhino pictures. And you can join in or, you know, follow along the Cincinnati Zoo's Facebook or Instagram, um, all sorts of things. But uh, we just wanted to say thanks and have a great day. Have a great one, guys. Share a post about a rhino today. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Take care.